thankful for that. We know that we are secure. Our place is secure in heaven for those who have believed on Jesus' name and all that he has done for us. We pray this morning as we look into your word that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us today. Help us not to push away and push back, but welcome whatever it is that you have for us. Pray that you'd be with Pete now as he brings the word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you this morning. What a powerful time of worship. Yeah, there's something here today, huh? There's just something going on this morning. I, I mean, I just love when I get to sit up front and hear you worship so loudly um, and to hear it in your voice, the genuineness of your worship. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to say welcome to Salem Heights Church. Uh, thank you for being here. We would love to meet you. And after this service, just outside these doors and to our right in our cafe area, we have an information window, and we will have a friendly face stationed in that window who would love to meet you and answer any questions you might have about our church. We actually have a small gift for you just to say thank you for being here. So if you're a guest with us today, again, thank you for being here, and please make sure you stop by our information window on your way out. Before we get to our sermon this morning, our passage for the day, I wanted to take just a moment to invite you all back. I know it was in uh, our Salem Heights Today video, but I want to invite you this uh, morning to come back tonight for our Lord's Supper service. Uh, We're going to be taking communion together in obedience to God's word, proclaiming his death until he comes back for us, and he is coming back, amen? Amen. Um, This is an important time for our church, but tonight's service will also have a time of prayer. And we believe in prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe that God hears our prayers. We believe that prayer is not just something that we do to God, but it's something that settles our hearts as believers. That every time we humble ourselves and go to him in prayer, it it, it reassures us that the one we're talking to can actually do something about what we're bringing to him. It reminds us that God's in control, that nothing escapes his notice or his sovereignty. And so there's much to pray for. Would you agree? So we're going to spend time tonight after we take communion. Uh, In this room, we're going to be praying for our church. We're going to be praying for one another. Uh, We're going to be praying for our city. We're going to be praying for our nation and beyond. And so I hope you would come back this evening and join us in this room. It starts at 645 and Uh, While I understand that requires you to come back, I believe that God will uh, bless that time tonight. And uh, the the Word of God says that our prayer is is powerful and effective. And so we want to do that together tonight. Let me pray for uh, our morning and and just just the opportunity of really understanding what God has for us as we dig in. God, I do thank you for the ability now through your Son to be able to come directly to you to be able to pray with confidence that when we do talk to you, God, you hear us, you care, and that you will respond. God, we we live in, in a day and age where your word is needed, and your church is growing, and you're equipping us to go out and be your hands and feet. But God, there is definitely enough going on in our world where we can be fearful if we take our eyes off you. And so we come this morning into this room and dwelt with your spirit to be reminded of what your word says. I pray that our confidence would come from it 
I pray that you would settle our hearts as we live in days of uncertainty and trust and know that what you said will come to pass and the promises we have in you will never fade away. They are sure. And so we just pray now as we enter this time of your word that you would give us understanding of it and that it would stir us to respond to you as only you deserve. We pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you quickly realize that you've overestimated your abilities? Uh, All right. We, uh, I think we all have at some point have gotten into a situation where we've kind of sat back and go, okay, I think I've overestimated what I've gotten myself into. Um, I know that this has happened to me quite often. Maybe it's happened to you. I, I would like to say that it happened more frequently when I was a younger man, but it still happens from time to time. Uh, maybe for you, it's been a time where you decided you wanted to start working out, maybe lifting some weights. Um, and, and you get into that and you go, I, I have some pictures just to, to kind of get us thinking in this way this morning. Um, I remember one time where my kids had this video game system, the Wii, and we had Wii Fit. And I'm like, I can do this. I'll try this out. And I went, and, I, and it starts you out like at the beginner setting. I'm like, this is a video game. How hard could it be? And so I went to the max setting for Wii Fit. And I did it. I, I literally could not sit down the next day. Like, it, I was so sore all over it. It totally worked me out. I had thought that, oh, I've got this. But quickly, I've got into a situation where it revealed my weakness. I'd overestimated how strong I was, how much fitness I had. Uh, maybe if for you, it's uh, been a, a do-it-yourself project. Uh, we live in a day and age where uh, we kind of have these stories that tell us that there's, there's, you can do anything you want. You can, you can create anything you want. You can fix anything you want. I was recently at one of the, the uh, stores, and I was talking to somebody about a question, and it was, I was straight, I mean, they looked at me. I don't know if it was just about how I looked, but they, they kind of like questioned, like, do you have a lot of experience doing this? Like, they didn't want to... <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, this is a do-it-yourself store. You shouldn't be talking me out of this. This is your business model to talk me into doing this. But I've been through many home improvement projects um, and, and just different projects where I thought I could do it. And I think in the day and age where we live with Pinterest and YouTube videos, it looks so easy, right? In the 30-minute show on television, they totally transform a house. How hard could it be? And yet we over, it, it realizes we quickly get into we've overestimated our abilities and also maybe the skills. And maybe we recognize we don't have all the tools that we need. Um, and that can kind of maybe humble us. And, and then how about maybe this last one is more really personal to me. Uh, maybe participating in an activity like slow pitch softball. I played a little baseball in high school. And, and when I was an old, a young adult, I was invited to play in a church softball team. I'm thinking, sure, how hard could this be? So I dusted off the cleats and the glove and went out there. And, and I got up to Matt and I stepped in the box and that first pitch went and I swung and I missed. I'm like, all right, I got this. Next pitch comes, swing and a miss. Third pitch comes, swing and a miss. I struck out in slow pitch softball. That was a pretty humbling experience (laughs) as a grown man. And needless to say, that's not an environment where you're going to get much sympathy from anybody out there. (laughs) 
I don't know about you, but I've been in certain situations like this, and there's probably a lot more that we could list where we got into something where we thought it would be easy, we thought we could do it, we thought we had what we needed to accomplish it, and yet once we got into that situation, we realized that we did not have what we needed to be successful. We didn't have what we needed to, um, to be successful. And I think there's several reasons why we fall into this these situations. One is that we sometimes, just by our, our innocent ignorance, we step into these situations. We don't have the experience, and so we step into it, and we don't recognize that we that have limitations going into it. And this is innocent, right? We're just going to try something. We think it's going to work out, and we just weren't ready for it. But there's also times where I think we ignore our limitations, where we expect that we're going to be the exception, or we could be the exception to this, uh, we, we can look at all the experiences of everybody else who's gone before us and who have done this, and then we can look at the experience that we have um, from uh, just reason and logic and all the evidence that says, this won't happen if you try this. This, this is what's going to happen. It's not going to be good. But we might think, oh, well, I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I know this is true for everybody else in the world, but it's not going to be true for me. I'm the exception. And this is, in some ways, innocent. In some ways, it's adventurous, which can be a good thing, that we don't just, you know, um, step back and, and not take those risks. I, I'm personally not a risk taker. But sometimes that can also be reckless. When we step into a situation where we're really not ready, but we ignore those limitations. But there's a third reason why I find we f- fall into these situations where we realize we don't have what it takes. And that's sometimes because we're overconfident. We step into a situation and we give ourselves too much credit. We think too highly of our abilities. We look at other people and we think, well, if they can do it, I surely can do it. This is pride. This is blinding. This is dangerous. You know, man's teaching apart from God makes him think pretty well of himself. Humanistic points of view, points of view that elevate man as being good and capable of doing whatever he wants, points to science and innovation and discovery as the proof of what we are progressing to. We look at ourselves and, and we point to science and we point to innovation and we point to discovery and we say, this is the proof that you and I are um, progressing. We're, we're on our way up as a culture. Things are getting better. Each generation kind of sees itself as that. We do live in a time of amazing innovation and discovery. Throughout the world, men and women are identifying problems and needs, and we see this problem and need, and we are setting ourselves out to fix that, to solve those problems, and to constantly develop new and better ways to do pretty much everything. I think our slides have gotten ahead of us just a little bit, but I'll go back and read our introduction on the front of our notes. It is absolutely amazing what man creates. Uh, pause right there. I, I was reading an article that says the iPhone has been around for 10 years now. It's hard to remember a time when we didn't have tablets and smartphones. I know a lot of us do remember the times when we didn't have any cell phones, and we kind of long for those days where we weren't so connected. But just how every year, every, every couple of months, it seems like there's a new update. There's a new phone. There's something new that can be done in the area of technology. But it's not just that. Whatever it be in the area of technology or medicine, we're thankful for some medicine that is life-saving. Or farming or industry. 
Innovation and discovery seems to be happening all around us. As a culture, we pride ourselves on our innovation, our ability to face a challenge and find a solution. But here's the problem. Our self-confidence in this area has blinded us from recognizing the needs inside of us that we can't meet on our own. To take it one step further, our overconfidence in self leads us to question our need for a savior. Instead of asking, what must I do to be saved? We ask, what must I do to succeed? Believe it or not, we're not the first people to struggle with this. Struggle with overconfidence. The people in Jesus' day did as well. And he made his way, as he made his way to the cross, Jesus made it clear that he was going to not only be the solution to our greatest need, but that that solution would not come from something man-created, would not be man-made. It was going to come down from above. You know, Scripture tells us that sinful man doesn't like to be told what to do. This is just in us. We don't train our kids to push back when we give them instruction. We weren't trained to push back when someone tells us what to do. That is part of the fall. That is part of our sinful nature. The rebelliousness that sits inside of us because of sin, we don't want to be told what to do. We want to elevate our view and we'll excuse or justify our behavior or our limitations, and we'll blame it on maybe our, our upbringing, which could have influenced it. But we could also blame our environment or maybe our lack of opportunity. If I had a better environment, or if I had more support, or if I had been given more opportunities, I can do whatever I wanted. I just need a little help. But the reality is Scripture tells us that our heart is not right. This morning, we're going to unpack a really important truth. We're in our study called, So What Do I Do With That? We've been working our way through the book of Luke. And, and all of these passages are so gospel-centric. They're so, they point us back to the reality of we could not fix our sin problem. Only Jesus could. And so we can't get away from this. Even though Easter was a few weeks ago, we're continually being brought back to what was needed for us on the cross. And so today we're going to unpack an important truth in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47, where Christ identifies himself through a question he asks the scribes, that he was not just a qualified leader, qualified to be the Messiah, but that he was God in the flesh. This is an essential thing to our faith as believers. But I don't want us to hear this and be reminded of it and then leave merely intellectually satisfied. I don't want us to just kind of go, yes, I believe that. That's good. Thanks for the reminder. And then head back out. No, I believe that there is something in this truth that my hope and my prayer this week has been that we would see it and realize how essential it is to fixing the problem that still is at battle and war within us, even though we might be saved from our sins. These passages we've been walking through the last several weeks are in the, the week called the Passion Week, the week of time, the days that lead up right before his crucifixion. And the time had come for Jesus to offer himself as our substitute. But what we've seen, and this is in your notes, as Christ made his way to the cross, his opponents continually question his qualification to be Messiah. Every single religious type of religious leader questioned Jesus. They questioned his qualification to be the Messiah that they were waiting for. Who are you? 
Why do you think you are the one? What gives you the right? And so they repeatedly questioned him. They were hoping to catch him in a saying or for him to make a statement where they could prove and say, aha, see, you're not the Messiah. You're not qualified to be the one we're waiting for. And, and, and as much as that sounds like they were trying to protect the people from false messiahs, they really weren't wanting the Messiah. The scriptures say that Jesus answered his questions. We've been looking at his responses over the last several weeks. And he answered all of their questions with such brilliance that uh, our last passage last week where it said, they basically said, the scribe said, you've answered this well, teacher, and they were quiet. They did not dare ask another question. They had tried every tactic they could think of. They had tried every form of trickery to get him to stumble. But Jesus, being God, knowing all things, perceived their deception and answered their questions in a way that proved that they were the ones that had some thinking to do. And so Jesus now has a question for the scribes. The answer would not only validate his sufficiency to be Messiah, but remind us of our need for intervention. That's what our message is about this morning, our need for a supernatural intervention. Let's read our passage for this morning, and then we'll uh, unpack it. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47. Would you stand in honor of God's word as we read it? Luke writes this, Then he said to them, How is it that they say Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who, are, who like to walk around in long robes, and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. You believe that's true? Amen. You may be seated. It is. An interesting point for us to jump back into our study of Luke. This question's almost, it's like a riddle. It's, it's kind of a tongue twister as you kind of listen to the way it's phrased here in Luke's narrative. But if we will take time to understand what Jesus was asking, we can see that Jesus' question revealed that he was not only Messiah, the one who would restore Israel's prominence, would restore Israel's kingdom, would restore the ability to sit on David's throne, but that he was God. The Jews believed that the Messiah, and Christ is just a synonym for Messiah. So if you see Christ or Messiah, Savior, they're talking about the same thing. The one that God had promised would be sent to restore Israel's political kingdom. But the problem was that these religious leaders had a focus on the physical human leader that would rise up to do this. Their focus was not uh, on understanding that this Savior that God promised would be more than just a man. So let's work through this passage and see why this reality that God, God's Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to die for our sins, was fully God and fully man. Let's see why this is important for you and me. 
the, the audience that Jesus is talking to this passage is the scribes. The scribes were the biblical experts of the day. They were the ones who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They were the ones, if you had a question about the Bible, you went to the scribes. Uh, they, they knew the scriptures, and they prided themselves on being experts in the law. And so Jesus was going to test this expertise. Throughout the Old Testament, there are several messianic prophecies. A messianic prophecy is a statement made in the Old Testament where God is communicating something about the coming Messiah. He's giving us insight. He's giving us information about who that Messiah would be and why that Messiah would be qualified to die for the sins of the whole world. How he would save man. How he would redeem and restore man to God. And so several passages taught that the Messiah would be from the physical bloodline of King David. This is part of a covenant, a promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Someone was going to come after David through whom God would use to restore Israel, their kingdom, their authority, their ability to, to lead as God's chosen people. But then Jesus draws the scribe's attention to the words of David, in Psalm 110. And so you'll notice in your Bible that there's this indentation and there's these quote marks because Jesus says here in verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, he quotes Psalm 110. The Jewish people considered this a messianic psalm, meaning the things that are written in Psalm 110 were talking about the future Messiah. And so in Psalm 110, David is quoted as communicating his belief that the coming Messiah was God. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, the word there is Adonai, said to my Lord, there's a personal king, my king. The Lord, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, the fact that they're together shows their equality. He's talking about God the Father, God the Son. David is acknowledging that his Messiah, my Lord, was God. So this was the question, to put it in simpler words for us to understand this morning, that Jesus was asking. How can they say, and they being the scriptures, the prophets of old, how can they say that the Messiah will be a physical descendant of David, will be someone who comes after David, who will actually be physical in form, in the same bloodline as David, when David acknowledges him as Lord? Scribes, tell me this. How is it possible for him to be a physical descendant of David, someone who would come after David and be born a human birth and live and have human blood, and that blood would be in the lineage of David. And yet David himself said, this is my Lord. See, in this culture, to call your son Lord doesn't make sense. So how is this possible? From merely a human perspective, this is a difficult question to answer for the scribes. Why would a father call his son Lord? In Matthew's parallel account of this interaction and this question that Jesus asks, it says that they didn't even dare to answer. They were unable to answer Jesus' question. But Jesus wasn't trying to disprove both of these realities. Scripture said these two things. They're both true. But rather, he's trying to show the scribes, the biblical scholars of the day, that the scriptures testified that the Messiah would be fully God and fully man. You see, Jesus was a son of David. 
in your notes, we have a number of verses that I've placed in there for you. You can take time this week to look at it, but throughout the scriptures, it, the passage in Isaiah points to that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And then as we read all these gospel accounts at the very beginning, as they identify the lineage, the genealogy of Christ, they acknowledge that Jesus was in fact humanly a descendant of David. What this means is two things. Number one, he had crown rights. He met the physical qualification given in the scriptures for the Messiah. He was from the royal bloodline of David. But what this also meant was that he could die, for phys- he could die a physical death. See, the, the Bible says the penalty for sin is death, physical death. In order for you and I to be saved, someone had to take our place and, and, make, and pay that price. In order for that to happen, the Messiah would have to be a human. He had to be fully man. And to make it one step even more in the qualification process, it couldn't just be any man. He had to be from the royal line of David. The scriptures testify that Jesus was a son of David. He was fully man, and he was in the right bloodline. But at the same time, he was also the son of God. Fully God. That's why David ascribes to him the title, Lord, my Lord, my King, the Messiah King. There too are some passages there for you to read this week, but what does this mean? Why was this so important? Well, this means that he had the divine power to save us. He had the divine power to live a perfect life so that when he got to the end of his life, he had no sins of his own to die for. He had the power divinely because he was God to live a perfect life as a human and then take on the sins of mankind and to absorb all of the wrath of God that he had poured out towards sin. Christ was able to absorb that for you and for me. In order to be the Messiah, he had to be both. See, the scribes were looking forward to a man who was qualified, he was from David's line, and he had all the leadership abilities to come into Israel, come into Jerusalem at that time, which was being oppressed. The the Jewish people felt they were being oppressed by the, the, the Roman rule in the time. And the Messiah would be one who would come in and would kick them out, get Rome to back off, and would reestablish Israel's political kingdom. We see this throughout the scriptures in the gospels. They're asking, when is your kingdom going to come? What is it going to look like? Is now the time? Is now the time? Jewish people were looking forward to the time where they were going to come and wouldn't have to be oppressed by another nation. Jesus didn't meet the qualifications that they thought needed to be there for it to be a qualified leader because they were purely looking at it from a physical standpoint. Yeah, he had to be from David's line, but there had to be some other qualities, you know, sizing Jesus up. He had to be a certain thing. And wait, Jesus is, he, he's going out and he's ministering and, and reaching out and, and loving the sinful. And he's, he's healing the, the diseased and he's going out to the, he's sending these people out to the highways and byways and going to those who are homeless and in need and he's bringing them in. This doesn't sound like the Messiah. Why would he spend time doing that? So that's not important. We need our power back. They totally missed it. Haven't we seen that in the study of Luke? They're just missing it. He's making it obvious, but they didn't want to receive this. They wanted a king of their choosing. They did not want to receive the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh who came to die for them. 
This is a crucial doctrine of Christian faith. If Jesus was not fully God and fully man at the exact same time, he would not be qualified to die for our sins. He would not have the divine power to rise from the dead, and we would be dead in our sins. Now, we can hear that and be intellectually satisfied this morning. That's a good reminder. And this is a place in Scripture where we could take somebody and say, How do you, why do you believe that God was fully God and fully man? Well, let's turn over to Luke chapter 20 and look at, you know, David says this, and this is what was already foretold in the Old Testament, and, and Jesus was pointing out that he was both fully God and fully man, and that's why we believe that. But I believe there's something for us this morning. There are a few observations I don't think we want to miss. You see, I think sometimes we look at Jesus and, and we see him as Savior. We see him as loving. We see him as the one who came and he was, he was this meek and mild Savior. There's no doubt that he was gifted and that he was influential, but we cannot miss the fact that he is God. Jesus is God. We talk about him, and again, the whole idea of, of believing in three persons who are one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is a big topic, and, and it's fun to explore that, and the scriptures do give us lots to look at and to ingest, and, and God reveals his truth about us. But sometimes, I feel like we look at God, and we see God is God, you know, he's the one that created all things, he's powerful, and, and he's the one we're going to answer to, and then we, we kind of put Jesus in like a, a subcategory, where, you know, he was, Jesus is God's sidekick. No, no, he's God in the flesh. Philippians tells us that he is equal with God, but did not consider the fact that he was God a reason for him to go, I'm not going down there to save those wretched people. Send the Spirit. Or you go down there. Right? I'm just as much God as you are. No, it's not what he does. It says he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he released that in obedience to the Father's will, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now he will be given the name that's above all names, that every knee will bow and tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. David got it. We need to understand this. Jesus is God. It's true. I love the quote from the preacher evangelist Vance Havner, a simple man who in the early 1900s, uh, until his, his death, and I, I believe he died in the 60s or 70s, went around, no, actually died in, in the 80s. He went around preaching the gospel to these little country towns all over America. And he wrote in a devotional that is entitled Only Jesus this quote. And this is quote has kind of been stirring in my mind as I've been thinking about why should I be moved? How should I be impacted, motivated by the reality that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? And I, I put it in our notes. Vance Havner wrote, Jesus Christ was not a step in the upward evolution of man from below. He was an intervention of God from above. I think why this is so important is that Jesus wasn't just the best man for the job at this point in history, and so he was the one that was offered up to try to be Messiah. Because again, we as man, if we think about ourselves and we remove God's word and we don't look at ourselves as God sees us, man begins to elevate his view of self. 
He begins to think that he can do whatever he wants, that he is basically good when Scripture tells us that we are not basically good. Man begins to believe in a process of evolution where we're getting better and better as time goes along, each generation becoming grander than the generation before. But the reality is man had the pinnacle of a relationship with God at the beginning because of sin. Now we are heading down, 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 down. We're not heading up. You might think, well, that's just the way that it talks about it in Bible times. You know, the, you know if you look at kind of the, the biblical uh, the biblical commentary, if you read it, the Bible and it talks about how the people were during the time that Jesus was around, well, that's how they were back then, but we're a much more sophisticated and cultured people now. All you have to do is read in Paul's epistles when he talks about this is what the people are going to be in the last days, and it doesn't give us a picture of man getting better, drawing closer to God. It's going away from God. And God, knowing this because of his great love for us, intervened being outside of his creation and seeing his, the suffering and the sin that was wrecking his creation, his great love for us caused to, him to pursue us and to step in and say, I'm going to provide a way, a way that only I can provide, a supernatural way. I'm going to meet the penalty for sin. And in doing so, I'm going to uphold my justice. I'm not going to just sweep it under the rug and try to change the standard that was set because the original standard I set for man was right because it's in relation to my nature, but I'm going to do what man can't do for himself. I'm going to make a way back to me. Jesus wasn't qualified to be the Messiah because of his intellect, his accomplishments, his obedience to the law, his resourcefulness, or his determination. He was qualified to be Messiah because he was fully God and fully man. Without him, we'd be lost in our sin and brokenness with no hope. Let's personalize it one step further. Without him, you would be lost in your sin and brokenness. Without him, I would be lost and broken and hopeless. When we realize this, it should humble us. It should give us a perspective that is so different from a perspective of man apart from God. Because we begin to realize that there's no way to succeed in life, no way to build a great life, a life that continues to go on into the future once we're gone, apart from the blood of Jesus. I'm so thankful that he stepped in and intervened for me. How about you? This is a thing that is risen to the top of what I want us to walk away from this morning. Yes, this doctrine of Jesus being fully God and fully man is so essential to the gospel, so essential to the salvation. It's what gives us confidence because there's great evidence in the scriptures that he was fully God and fully man. And I can believe that with confidence, place my faith in that, and now I'll walk boldly with my eyes fixed on him, awaiting his return, filling out the calling that he's laid from my life. It's all because he was qualified. He was a sufficient, qualified substitute. That's how we are supposed to live. And, but that's not where it stops because that reality should now continue to move beyond that to where I realize that he had to intervene for me in that, in, in the relationship of my relationship with sin, and he needed to step in and save me and rescue me. But even today, even though now I walk in the spirit, even though now I have a relationship with him, my sins are forgiven, I desperately need God's intervention in my life today. And I think it's easy for us sometimes to, you know, acknowledge the fact that I needed him to be saved and then kind of take back the responsibility of living my Christian life and not walking day by day and saying, I need you today. Yeah. 
Lord, I need you. I need you to intervene. I need your wisdom. I need your guidance. I need your help to overcome the things that are working against me, my own flesh, which is sinful. A world that is not pointing me towards your word. It's pointing me towards my goodness, which I know for a fact is not there because I know my heart. Or to an enemy, Satan, who's, who's roaming around seeking to pick me off and to kind of inflate my view of self like he did to Eve in the garden so that I will take my eyes off God, I will change what his word says, and I will do what I think looks pleasing to the eye and will be good for my body, knowing that it's going to entangle me and drag me down, not point me up. There is no confidence. There is no confidence apart from an identity rooted in Christ. Identity is a big thing to us. We want to be known as something. We want to be able to point to something and say, this is what qualifies me. This is what makes me significant. This is what I can point to that I have done. But in the reality of who we are, the necessity, the fact that Christ had to intervene or else we were, had no hope, clearly exposes my limitations. It clearly works against man's idea that he can make it happen, that he can, you know, just through grit and determination and hard work, he can accomplish whatever he wants to do. There are lots of things that we're doing. There's lots of things that we're creating. There are lots of problems that God is using people to, to solve. All of them a revelation of his design, his strength, his beauty, his provision. But when we recognize our limitations, it should drive us not to taking on life by our own abilities and by our own intellect and by our own standing in society. No, it should drive us back to the reality that we need him. That my identity is not in my abilities or my ability to speak or my ability to connect with somebody, but it's because of what he is doing in me. See, this is the key difference between a believer and a non-believer. A believer says, it's all about Christ. My life is for his glory. My purpose is to accomplish his will. And I'm only able to do that through his power in me. I can't, but he can. The non-believer rejecting the need for a savior and believing that they can do it apart from a relationship with the creator says, it's all about me. It's all about my glory. It's all about my will. I can do it. I just need a little boost. The Son of God had to step in, and we need him to continue to intervene in our lives. And so the question for us this morning is, the first one is, do you live as one seeking God's intervention throughout your day? What I'm hoping that we will see is that you can't take time to study the doctrine of Christ being fully God and fully man, which qualifies him to be our sacrifice and not allow that to take your mind straight to the fact that that reveals that I need him. I need him. Because apart from him, I can't do anything that's worth anything in his eyes. I can do nothing that's eternal, nothing that he would look and say that's good apart from him. I need him today. But then in verse 45, Christ then moves his attention to the scribes that he was talking to, the biblical experts, and he gives a warning to his followers. Luke says in verse 45, And while the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes 
He's, they're right there. They, they're hearing him say this. Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. They will receive great condemnation. These were the biblical experts of the day. These are the ones that should have known better, but Jesus warns his followers to be on guard against the deadly attitudes modeled by the scribes. There's a practical warning here in these verses. The first is this, watch out for these guys. These guys will mislead you. You know why he doesn't care that they're standing right there and he's talking about them? Because he knows in a few days he's going to give up his life for us. And then in a few weeks after that, after he rises from the dead, he's going back to be with the Father, and he wants us to be aware of who we should keep our eyes focused on. Who is the example we should be following? God came in the flesh. His life is recorded for us to watch. He is the example that we should be following. If we're going to call ourselves a Christian, I'm following Christ. My life should reflect what you read in the scriptures about his life, his attitude, what was important to him. But also he's saying, they have an attitude that is dangerous. You see, they knew the scriptures but missed the point. They knew that passage in Psalm 110. They knew that what David had said. And they also knew the passages in the Old Testament that spoke to him being from the Davidic line, that he was going to be a physical man. And yet they totally missed the fact that he was going to be both of those that the, the real Messiah, because there had been people even before Christ who claimed to be the Messiah, but who were killed and put in graves, and their bones are still there. They're probably dissolved to dust now, because that's what happens. But they didn't rise. They weren't who they said they were. They needed to be looking for not just a man who was qualified, but God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. But they also failed to see the heart of the word throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. There is clear teaching on how they were to, how they were to take care of the orphans and the widows. And it says here that Jesus said, these, these men, they love all of the pomp and circumstance that comes with their position and title, but they're devouring those who they should be helping. They're taking advantage of those who have just a little bit left of their inheritance, and they will be taking money from them and it mentions here that they, they would offer for appearances' sake long prayers. They would, they would say to these widows, well, if you pay me, I'll make a prayer on your behalf to God, and maybe God will hear me better and take care of you. Their heart wasn't the heart of the scriptures. They were selfish. They knew the scriptures but missed the point, and they were overconfident in outward spirituality. Look how Luke characterizes them. They were lovers of self. Notice what they loved. They loved their position. They loved the influence, how people moved when they were in their presence. They loved their clothes, the special clothes they got to wear that communicated something about their esteem and their privilege. They loved the special greetings they received. They were blinded by pride. Does your attitude reflect a humble confidence rooted in the gospel? See, a humble confidence is one that says, I'm confident, but not in my own abilities. I'm confident because of the gospel. Because what Christ did, and me being now in him, and now the promises that he has made to me, that's what I'm confident. 
that he who began that good work will be faithful to complete it in me. That he's not going to leave me or forsake me. That if I confess my sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive them and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. See, it's easy for us to maybe look at the scribes, and I think the warning here is true. Don't be one that knows the scriptures but misses the point. Don't be one that's focused on outward spirituality and thinking that's what pleases God. That's selfish. Man's heart is not right. My heart is not right. In myself, I'm on the way down. I'm spiraling in my sins, in myself, apart from God. But because of him, he stepped in and changed the course. Only God can do that. See, God steps in and does something for us and to us and in us. Believer, if you believe that this morning, that the God of all creation loved you enough to intervene for you, to step in and create a way when there was no way, that should impact how you live. What would your life look like this week if you humbly sought God's wisdom in every decision you faced? That you lived in light of his, his great intervention, his great provision, the way he stepped in and changed the course in a way that only he could do from above. What if we lived this week as a people? So I'm going to make my decisions, not on my own. I'm not going to try to fi- figure out these hardships and these obstacles that are in front of me. I'm going to focus on Christ and I'm going to follow his lead living in step with his spirit rather than on my own. We need to put our confidence in his power, in his provision, in his promises. He is our savior, our king, fully God and fully man, and he demands a lifestyle that reflects his glory. If you're here this morning and, and you, you understood who Jesus was, you understood him as being a pretty significant person to Christian faith, you're right, But the reality is he wasn't just a good man or a wise teacher or the best option at the time. He was and is God. And he came and he died for the sins, not only of the people that are in this room who already call themselves Christians, but he died for the sins of all men. And he has now provided a way through faith that I believe that, that he will forgive sins and start a relationship with you again. He will restore that relationship and now he will go through the rest of this life and into eternity in a relationship with your Savior. If you're hearing this truth this morning that Jesus is not just a good man, what separates him about from every other person of prominence in the course of human history is that he was fully God and, and you believe that's true, respond to that today. Tell him you believe that. Begin a relationship with him, and by your faith, he will forgive your sins. Place his Holy Spirit inside you, and you will not walk alone any longer. But believer, let us not leave this place and live one moment this week where we take our eyes off what he has done for us and our need for him to continue to intervene in our lives. Let's let the reality that he was fully God and fully man motivate us to live for him this week. Amen? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the truth. I'm thankful for teaching that we can build our lives upon that gives us great confidence i'm thankful that you came you sent your son to take on human flesh 
I'm thankful that Christ came in obedience to your will and offered his life for our sins. God, I pray that we would not now go back into living in a spirituality that's just so outward, but that we would truly be changed from the inside out and that we'd be walking with a humble confidence and a reliance on who you are. Help us to focus on you this week, Father. Help us to live for you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.